0: Welcome to the PRI Review brought to you by the Population Research Institute. I'm your host, Christopher Mannion. This past Friday was the 48th anniversary of the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision. That struck down pro life legislation and common law in every state in the Union. Unfortunately, due to the Democrats' lockdown of Washington, the annual March for Life had to be canceled for the first time in its history. But on his last Sunday in office, President Trump's administration continued to prioritize life by declaring January 22nd National Sanctity of Human Life Day as a public service. We read it here in its entirety. Every human life is a gift to the world, whether born or unborn, young or old, healthy or sick. Every person is made in the holy image of God. The Almighty Creator gives unique talents, beautiful dreams, and a great purpose to every person. On National Sanctity of Human Life Day, we celebrate the wonder of human existence and renew our resolve to build a culture of life where every person of every age is protected, valued, and cherished. This month, we mark nearly 50 years since the United States Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision. This constitutionally flawed ruling overturned state laws that banned abortion and has resulted in the loss of more than 50 million innocent lives but strong mothers, courageous students, and incredible community members and people of faith are leading a powerful movement to awaken America's conscience and restore the belief that every life is worthy of respect, protection, and care. Because of the devotion of countless pro-life pioneers, the call for every person to recognize the sanctity of life is resounding more loudly in America than ever before. Over the last decade, The rate of abortions has steadily decreased, and today, more than three out of four Americans support restrictions on abortion. Since my first day in office, I have taken historic action to protect innocent lives at home and abroad. I reinstituted and strengthened President Ronald Reagan's Mexico City policy, issued a landmark pro-life rule to govern the use of Title X taxpayer funding, and took action to protect the conscience rights of doctors, nurses, and organizations like the Little Sisters of the Poor. My administration has protected the vital role of faith-based adoption. At the United Nations, I made clear that global bureaucrats have no business attacking the sovereignty of nations that protect innocent life. Just a few months ago, our nation also joined 32 other countries in signing The Geneva Consensus Declaration, which bolsters global efforts to provide better health care to women, protect all human life, and strengthen families. As a nation, restoring a culture of respect for the sacredness of life is fundamental to solving our country's most pressing problems. When each person is treated as a beloved child of God, individuals can reach their full potential, communities will flourish, America will be a place of ever greater hope and freedom. That is why it was my profound privilege to be the first president in history to attend the March for Life and it is what motivates my actions to improve our nation's adoption and foster care system, secure more funding for Down syndrome research, and expand health services for single mothers. Over the past four years, I have appointed more than 200 federal judges who apply the Constitution as written, including three Supreme Court justices, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. I also increase the child tax credit so that mothers are financially supported as they take on the noble task of raising strong and healthy children. And recently, I signed in an executive order on protecting vulnerable newborn and infant children, which defends the truth that every newborn baby has the same rights as all other individuals to receive life-saving care. The United States is a shining example of human rights for the world. However, some in Washington are fighting to keep the United States among a small handful of nations, including North Korea and China, that allow elective abortions after 20 weeks. I join with countless others who believe this is morally and fundamentally wrong, and today I renew my call on the Congress to pass legislation prohibiting late-term abortion. Since the beginning, my administration has been dedicated to lifting up every American, and that starts with protecting the rights of the most vulnerable in our society, the unborn. On National Sanctity of Human Life Day, we promise to continue speaking out for those who have no voice. We vow to celebrate and support every heroic mother who chooses life, and we resolve to defend the lives of every innocent and unborn child, each of whom can bring unbelievable joy, love, beauty, and grace into our nation and the entire world. Now, therefore, I, Donald Trump, President of the United States of America by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Constitution and the laws of the United States, do hereby proclaim January 22, 2021 as National Sanctity of Human Life Day. Today, I call on the Congress to join me in protecting and defending the dignity of every human life, including those not yet born. I call on the American people to continue to care for women in unexpected pregnancies and to support adoption and foster care in a more meaningful way so that every child has a loving home. And finally, I ask every citizen of this great nation to listen to the sound of silence caused by a generation lost to us and then to raise their voices for all affected by abortion, both seen and unseen. In witness thereof, I have hereunto set my hand this 17th day of January in the year of our Lord, 2021, and of the independence of the United States of America, the 245th. Thus far, the text of President Donald Trump's Declaration of National Sanctity of Human Life Day. Now, why did I have to read it out loud? Well, I found that text on the White House website four days ago. Two days later, an hour after Catholic Joe Biden was sworn in, his staff removed the proclamation for life from the White House site. The proclamation of the sanctity of human life is just another victim of the Democrats' cancel culture. But wait, there's more. Democrats who surrounded Washington entire downtown with barbed wire made it impossible for half a million pro-lifers to attend the March for Life this year. It was canceled for the first time in its history. Catholic Joe Biden's crowd thinks that we are all terrorists and seditionists. They want to shut us up and shut us down every day of every year. We are up against a satanic enemy, folks, but that won't stop us. We will keep fighting for life and invoke the help of he who is the way, the truth, and the life. Now I want to take a closer look at that enemy and what he's up to next. To do that, we're going to take a trip down memory lane and remember George Orwell's novel, 1984. It was written in 1948, and it predicted a lot of what's going on today. Especially poignant is its hijacking of hate for political purposes. I'm going to read you a passage from Orwell's 1984 that might sound hauntingly familiar. It deals with the two minutes hate. Every single day at the Ministry of Truth, the staff had to gather for the two minutes hate. And the horrible thing about it, he writes, was not that one was obliged to act a part, but on the contrary, that it was impossible to avoid joining in. The next moment, a hideous grinding speech as of some monstrous machine running without oil burst from the big telescreen at the end of the room. It was a noise that set one's teeth on edge and bristled the hair at the back of one's neck. The hate had started. As usual, the face of Emmanuel Goldstein, the enemy of the people, had flashed on the screen. There were hisses here and there among the audience, The little sandy-haired woman gave a squeak of mingled fear and disgust. Goldstein was the renegade and backslider, who once long ago, how long ago, nobody quite remembered, had himself been one of the leading figures of the party, almost on a level with Big Brother, and then had engaged in counter-revolutionary activities, had been condemned to death, and had mysteriously escaped and disappeared. The sight or even the thought of Goldstein produced fear and anger automatically. But What was strange was that although Goldstein was hated and despised by everybody, although every day and a thousand times a day on platforms, on the telescreen, in newspapers and books, his theories were refuted, smashed, Ridiculed, held up to the general gaze for the pitiful rubbish that they were. In spite of all this, his influence never seemed to grow less. Always there were fresh dupes waiting to be seduced by Goldstein. A day never passed when spies and saboteurs acting under his directions were not unmasked by the thought police. He was the commander of a vast, shadowy army, an underground network of conspirators dedicated to the overthrow of the state. In its second minute, the hate rose to a frenzy. People were leaping up and down in their places, shouting at the tops of their voices in an effort to drown the maddening, bleating voice that came from the screen. And then it ended. Big Brother appeared on the screen in his slogans, printed in huge letters on the headquarters of the Ministry of Truth, appeared. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. Folks, those will be the watchwords, not for the next two minutes or the next two weeks, but for the next two years. George Orwell was right. For Democrats, Trump will be the enemy forever. Their bullhorn will be blasting Trump long after the inauguration fades into memory because that bullhorn is working right now. As Joe Biden puts it, Democrats are a one-horse pony. And blame Trump is their cattle call as long as Joe is tied to the saddle like a burnt-out buckaroo. What else have they got? Oh, sure. Announcing the administration of Joe Biden. Where's the applause? There isn't any. Catholic Joe's agenda is as brain dead as he is. To invoke the words of John Nance Garner, another former vice president, Joe's action plan is about as scintillating as a bucket of warm spit. So what's the only word that resonates in D.C.'s echo chamber? Trump! All others are like trees falling in a faraway forest. Nobody hears them, and nobody cares. So it's settled. The D.C. Hive will be blaring, Trump, Trump, forever. Big Brother's Ministry of Truth had to have its Emanuel Goldstein, and without Trump, the worker bees and Bidenville's version would be sitting by the side of the road. Consider, how long would the Washington Post last if its pages were full of snits over Kamala's bad Vogue cover? or Dr. Jill's 100th visit to an impoverished kindergarten classroom. But wait, there's more. Where would Nancy Pelosi be without Trump? You'd think she'd want to finish him off. She wants to impeach Trump again, doesn't she? But observe her stated reason. She wants to prevent him from running again in 2024. Behind that fatuous fraud lies a very real fear. If he does run, he might win. Sure, she has a bucket full of wrenches she can throw into the election machine. Mass immigration, free citizenship for illegals, universal mail-in voting, no voter ID. And she can propose countless new ones as well. Try voting online, lowering the voting age to 16. Even giving members of favored minorities two votes instead of one to make up for past discrimination. But Pelosi is right. He still might win. So the noise will continue full blast. Pelosi has to keep Trump alive and well and hated. Otherwise, we might be discussing the fraud. Look at her own tweet on May 16, 2017, when Speaker Pelosi said, Our election was hijacked, she wrote then. There is no question... Congress has a duty to protect our democracy and follow the facts, end quote. (laughs) What about the big steal? The Democrats were cheering the really rioting, mostly peaceful, leftists all summer long. And what about their lockdowns? Well, that was then and this is now. And the then and the now are subject to revision by means of Orwell's memory hole, which is a whole lot deeper than Joe Biden's basement. So instead of recounting the outrages, their name is Legion, let's look at what the left is doing inside their cacophony machine. Orwell called it the versificator machine. There they are mounting a surprisingly effective and sophisticated strategy to divide three targeted communities Republicans, pro lifers, and Trump supporters. Yes, these groups overlap, to be sure, and as a disciplined and united coalition, they are almost invincible. The Democrats aim to destroy all three of these coalitions, and unfortunately, there are a lot of Republicans who are willing to help them. Here's why. Consider the GOP gains in the House last November. Fourteen new pro-life Republicans. The GOP... The GOP had momentum, and Nancy got a lot of heat for it from her own members. She's got to make sure that 2022 is not an instant replay, not just of last November, but of 1994 and 2010. Now remember, in those two off-year elections, the last two Democrat presidents lost big time after controlling the House and the Senate, for the first two years of their tenure. In 1994, two years into the Clinton administration, Republicans gained 54 seats in the House and 8 in the Senate. In 2010, two years into Obama, Republicans gained 63 seats in the House and 6 in the Senate. If that happens again in two years, Pelosi is toast. And that's why she is relentlessly attacking nonstop. But wait a minute. Why would the GOP be such an easy target? Well, bear in mind that not every Republican has the same strength of spine as Donald Trump or Jesse Helms 30 years ago. These two figures come to mind as the only two politicians in recent history who could not only survive media assassination attempts, day after day, but actually grew stronger because of them. No, not their colleagues. There, many Republicans still want the media to be nice to them. Many a GOP member still trembles at the prospect of a smear job from the Washington Post. Now, this is true even after Donald Trump has spent the past five years exposing so-called media professionals as the lazy, lightweight lapdogs of the Democrat left that they are. GOP cowardice dies hard. So the current noise plays a critical part in the effort to keep Republicans on the defensive knocked back on their heels, if not actually knocked down. That circus will not subside because the media conglomerates have nothing to say, nothing worth saying, about Joe Biden's administration and its agenda. Without exception, It constitutes an endless, boring replay of the usual platitudes. Yes, his agenda is radical and dangerous, but it is intellectually vapid. Tyranny usually is. On January 10th, Biden said that our priority will be Black, Latino, Asian, and Native American-owned small businesses, women-owned businesses, and finally, having equal access to resources needed to reopen and rebuild. His vulgar racism went unnoticed, as usual. Why bother? Two weeks ago, 10 House Republicans caved, as usual, and voted for impeachment. One of them, Liz Cheney, a member of the GOP House leadership, savagely attacked Trump. Finally, she gets payback for the guy who leveled similar criticism at her father's wars 15 years ago. Then, House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy chimes in, and he blames Trump for the riots on Capitol Hill. Oh, the irony. In bad-mouthing Trump, McCarthy has kissed his chances of being speaker in the next Republican Congress forever. Why are Democrats pushing a futile impeachment effort then. Near term, Trump justifies everything. Down the memory hole go their scandals, the fraud, Hunter Biden, Joe's China ties, Antifa's real riots. Instead, Democrats have made Washington, D.C. look like Baghdad or Kabul, with thousands of troops locking it down to, so to say, prevent violence. A Defiant Democrat left is flexing its muscles. No crowds would have shown up for Biden's inauguration anyway, so they made lemonade, signaling that Trump is dangerous and his supporters are literally the enemy. The nation's capital is still off limits and the entire country is a war zone. We can shut you down at will. And they didn't have to abolish the Electoral College, pack the Supreme Court, overturn the Second Amendment, or have a Democrat in the White House or a Democrat majority in the Senate to do it. This agitprop serves as a very effective cover story for their long-term political goal, fomenting the split in the GOP and exacerbating it through the 2022 elections. So far, it's working, and with Democrats in charge of the White House, the House, and the Senate, this is going to be a very tough two years. You're listening to the PRI Review from the Population Research Institute at POP.org. We'll be right back. Here's an important message from Population Research Institute President Steve Moser. Joe Biden and his abortion crew are already tearing down President Trump's four-year fight against abortion, but do not despair. We can still win one major pro-life victory after another, and Biden will be powerless to stop it. Let me explain. Here's how pro-lifers can pull an end run around Biden and his abortion crew. Just as we've successfully done in recent years, we can help pass heartbeat legislation in even more states in 2021. Heartbeat legislation, as you know, outlaws the killing of unborn babies from the moment a baby's heartbeat can be heard. Passing heartbeat legislation in even more states will save countless babies' lives, and because it is state legislation, there is not one single thing Biden can do to block it. PRI research shows good to excellent chances of passing heartbeat legislation in these 11 states. Texas, Oklahoma, Utah, Indiana, Nebraska, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, South Dakota, South Carolina, and West Virginia. Here's how PRI will help add those states to the heartbeat list. We will use the one sure tactic that all politicians understand— and fear nothing gets a politician's attention faster than voters united and demanding immediate action on specific legislation in this case heartbeat legislation so that's exactly what pri will help do in the 11 states i just listed we'll produce a special video aimed at educating and mobilizing pro-life voters in those 11 states The video will run on social media outlets that reach large numbers of pro-life viewers in each of the targeted states. Already, PRI is followed by one million pro-lifers on Facebook. With heartbeat legislation as the topic, we expect to add 50,000 new readers in just these 11 targeted states alone, adding to the pressure on governors and state legislators to pass Heartbeat. PRI ads promoting heartbeat legislation will run regularly in the diocesan newspapers of the 11 targeted states, one of the very best ways to reach and mobilize devout Catholics. And of course, we will flood governors and legislative leaders in the 11 targeted states with petitions for heartbeat legislation. We will make them feel the heat. Here are the two ways you can personally help guarantee victory, and both ways are essential. The first way you can help win in the 11 states targeted for heartbeat legislation is prayer. Prayer costs nothing, and it works, so we are counting on your prayers. The second way you can help win heartbeat legislation is through a financial sacrifice to help PRI meet the $55,000 budget essential to victory. Please go to our website at pop.org, P-O-P dot O-R-G, and make your sacrificial gift to help us in this vital mission. Help us protect the unborn, please, in the face of Joe Biden's massive abortion campaign. Just click Donate on our website at pop.org, to help those babies survive and flourish. Thank you. Well, 75 days after the election, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops finally confronted Joe Biden on abortion. On the morning of January 20th, Inauguration Day, USCCB President Jose Gomez released a statement on the inauguration of Joe Biden, promising prayers and repeating many of the conference's familiar buzzwords regarding its social justice agenda. Pope Francis, never a fan of President Trump, had also sent a warm message to Biden, and we expected that Gomez would continue in the same vein in his own. But after his generic greeting, the Archbishop of Los Angeles made what must be seen as a stunning departure from the conference's usual aversion to confronting absolute evils. I must point out, he wrote, that our new president has pledged to pursue certain policies that would advance moral evils and threaten human life and dignity most seriously in the areas of abortion contraception marriage and gender of deep concern is the liberty of the church and the freedom of believers to live according to their consciences and quote now we have to note here that we should not let the archbishop's mild-mannered prose distract us. Concern is the USCCB's most emphatic noun of choice. No, the archbishop's statement is historic. After more than a year, he has finally said out loud what bishops promised in November 2019 to make their prime mandate, abortion. We recall how that preeminence of abortion came to pass, It was the result of a heated debate that found a third of the American hierarchy led by Chicago Cardinal Blaise Cupich opposing it. Having won the vote in 2019, the USCC majority immediately went silent for over a year until last Wednesday. Then Archbishop Gomez persevered. For the nation's bishops, the continued injustice of abortion remains the preeminent priority, he wrote. But he quickly attempts to soften his bold resuscitation of the abortion issue with the mandatory reaffirmation of the conference's social justice agenda. And I quote, Preeminent does not mean only. We have deep concerns about many threats to human life and dignity in our society. But as Pope Francis teaches, we cannot stay silent when nearly a million unborn lives are being cast aside in our country year after year through abortion, end quote. Now, Archbishop Gomez's statement is striking not because it is so powerful, frankly it isn't, but because it is so rare. This is true not only for the U.S. conference's statements during the Trump years, but those in earlier times as well. Long before Trump, the USCCB was so enamored of Obama's open borders policy and the launch of Obamacare that the abortion issue didn't just take a back seat, it was put on ice. With the election of Donald Trump four years ago, our bishops were confronted with a president who reversed Obama's anti-life policies and made great strides. In defending religious liberty and positive positions on abortion, contraception, marriage, and gender. Precisely the advances that Archbishop Gomez today fears that Biden will reverse. But during the Trump years, the bishops fired a senior USCCB official who had dared to praise Trump's pro-life policies on her own Facebook page, by the way and they focused on opposing the president on a host of issues, from refugee policy in Cuba to sanctuary cities and foreign aid. Meanwhile, despite abortion's preeminence, the conference left it on the shelf as bishops zealously advocated their social justice agenda. Well, as the Latinists say, tempestas surgit. Archbishop Gomez's cautious prose wasn't an soft enough for Cardinal Supich. Within hours, the Chicago Cardinal publicly registered his disapproval with a statement of his own, which I quote, Today, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops issued an ill-considered statement on the day of President Biden's inauguration. The statement was crafted without the involvement of the Administrative Committee, a collegial consultation that is Normal course for statements that represent and enjoy the considered endorsement of the American bishops. He continues The internal institutional failures involved must be addressed, he continued, and I look forward to contributing to all efforts to that end so that, inspired by the gospel, we can build up the unity of the church and together take up the work of healing our nation in this moment of crisis. End quote. Well, then he followed up with his own statement on the inauguration that he had written earlier. The Catholic community of the Archdiocese of Chicago joins our prayers with those of Pope Francis for the new President and First Lady, Vice President and Second Gentleman. And we extend our warmest wishes as they assume their new service to the nation. Only two weeks ago, the world watched as our democracy was attacked. Supic continued, Today we proved its resilience. The new administration begins in a time of global pandemic, economic peril, and deep division, when millions of our brothers and sisters have been brought low by illness, poverty, and racism. We pray that the way forward will be inspired, as the Holy Father asked, by dreaming together, period, close quote. Well, Supich's statements, both of them, fail to mention the threat that Biden poses with regard to abortion, contraception, marriage, gender, or religious freedom. And notice that he doesn't blame the lockdowns that brought on poverty for millions, that destroyed lives and livelihoods, that shut down schools, that ruined whole communities, that emptied cities. No, nothing of that for Catholic Cardinal Blaise Supich You know, on the surface, Supich bases his disagreement on Gomez's alleged end run around the conference's administrative committee. Well... Given the USCCB's frequent invocation of policies, procedures, protocols, and platitudes in their day-to-day operations, his objection might have legitimacy on those grounds. But as his own official statement shows, his disagreement is based on substance, not procedure. He fought preeminent 14 months ago, and he is fighting it now. Catholics have to take note in this historic time, Cardinal supich made clear the profound division that exists among the American hierarchy and in the American church. That division is based on principle, not procedure. Supich's faction not only supports the social justice agenda, it supports nothing else. For them, Biden's support of the entire anti-life agenda is of no more importance than his views on tax rates, deficit spending, or mail-in voting. Good Catholics, like Joe, like Supich, can disagree. Don't get bogged down in the rabbit hole of objective evils. The point is, as Pope Francis puts it, dreaming together. Supich doesn't mention it, you know. But we should note with approval another rare but equally revealing and vital affirmation in Gomez's statement. After addressing objective evils, like abortion and euthanasia, he refers to the bishop's other political agenda items. There, he says, our duty to love and our moral principles lead us to prudential judgments and positions that do not align neatly with the political categories of left or right or the platforms of two major political parties. Now, objective evils versus prudential positions. However softly he makes this point and however little emphasis he gives it, this is a major distinction that social justice bishops rarely acknowledge. In fact, many react with scorn to the charge that the conference's prudential opinions and judgments and positions aren't just as magisterial as those dealing with objective good and evil. That's because they would have to append a critical sentence at the end of each of the thousands of letters and official statements on dozens of prudential issues that incessantly flow from the conference staff offices in Washington. And I quote, Of course, the views expressed here reflect the prudential judgment of bishops. Good Catholics can disagree and are encouraged to propose other positions equally informed by the faith. Close quote. The Supich faction wants to eliminate that crucial distinction for good because if they admitted it, their social justice platform would sink lower than Joe Biden's basement. Well, look, the battle is on. And meanwhile, back to business as usual. And right on cue, A day later, the U.S. Catholic Conference palaver machine returned to autopilot, announcing the bishops' delight that Biden will go whole hog on global warming. Catholic leaders express hope with President's announcement that U.S. will rejoin the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, the headline reads. Another welcomes Biden's commitment to DACA and the call for legislation On immigration reform. So, our shepherds demand higher energy prices while Communist China thumbs its nose at the whole thing and welcomes 22 million cheap foreign workers who will lower entry level wages across the country. So much for their celebrated preferential option for the poor. Archbishop Gomez's sober moment has passed. Unfortunately, it looks like the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops is drifting back into its familiar obscurity. You've been listening to the PRI Review from the Population Research Institute at pop.org. Thanks for listening.